Well, hello, Pierre. Thank you so much for being here and thank you for being on my podcast. Hello, Anna. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you. How about you? Where are you, where are you right now in the world? Uh, I'm actually calling you from uh, Victoria in Canada. And I've been living there since uh, March, approximately. Uh, escaped the cold of Calgary that, uh, you know, I couldn't, couldn't stand any more than the 30s. I like to start my podcast with a quick intro and just to tell people how I met my guest. And we met in Calgary how many years ago? Six years ago now? Five years? Six years ago? Approximately, yeah. yeah. Yes, and, and I think we share some similar stories in terms of how we moved to Canada and the industry we work in. So today I'm so thrilled to share your story with my audience and to share your experience of going from one country to another changing your career path, soul searching. I think we've both done that before. And I think it's exciting to learn about stories like yours. And I guess we'll start with just a quick uh, introduction of what do you do now and how you got to where you are now. And we'll go from here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm now the chief product officer for a young startup that is based in Calgary. Uh, the company is focusing on developing a platform electrode for the recording and stimulation of the nervous system in general in the body. Uh, it can be both uh, for invasive or non-invasive applications. And we've been around for about four or five years now. Uh, I just switched actually to the role of chief product officer. I was the CEO before. And uh, for reasons that we can definitely delve into, uh, it made more sense for me to uh, focus more on the product for the time being. Now, how did I get to where I am? So I guess like going back to when I was a kid, I'll call myself a kid back then in France and figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. I, um, I, I knew I loved engineering and I knew I loved science uh, and I just didn't know what to do within that realm. So I ended up working in the field of uh, human factors and user experience uh, because I always loved the connection between humans and technologies. And then I worked a bit for a large company back in Paris uh, that is doing a lot of R&D, a lot of innovation in the space of medical devices. And I realized that a lot of the people that were directing a program or a department often had a PhD, if not a PhD plus an MBA. So back then I realized, well, maybe it's time for me to do my PhD as well. Uh, but because I, you know, it was in 2012, um, France economy was sinking at the time and I was just craving for a change. So I ended up um, uh, signing off a contract to start a PhD in Calgary in Canada. I, uh, I knew the place from before because I did an internship there, but it was still a very new place for me uh, where I you know, knew very little about. And yeah, bought a one-way ticket and moved to Calgary that was in 2012 to do my PhD um, and never had a single second of regrets since then. The, you know, the research that I did was fascinating. Uh, I was super excited by seeing some of the technology that we have moving into a startup. Uh, and the reason we did that as well was because we knew it will affect patients' life. And we also realized that if we were not doing it ourselves, then that technology or that product will never see the light of the day. And so, you know, in 2017, 2018, we, um, we basically decided to launch the company Neurora uh, through the Creative Destruction Lab, which is a fantastic accelerator that we have in Canada and now around the world. And uh, yeah, that's that's really what got us where we are now. Yeah. Well, would you say that Canada was more of a random choice or you knew that Canada is a potential I don't know, land of opportunity for you in this field? How would you describe that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think at the time I was like super open on where I would land. Um, I was always fascinated by Asia places and, and, and innovation done in Australia as well. 
a bit by the US, but somehow the US always felt a bit like, you know, more like a stranger place to me. Coming from Europe to live there was a bit, I don't know, not the same appeal. Mm-hmm. And then like I knew the principal investigator in the lab that I needed doing my PhD in. So it make it made things a bit easier. Now for the story though, when I did my first internship during my engineering school, um I went there for three months, and it was in summer, which is supposed to be the best time of the year to visit Calgary if you want warm weather. Um, mm-hmm. And I worked there for, for that length of time and then, you know, left Calgary. And even though I had a good time and people were so nice and, you know, super welcoming environment, I told myself that I will never come back to Calgary because it's too American to me or American feel, you know, like streets that are old square and you know it's not the same culture than we have in europe and then um you know i i especially told myself that i will never do a phd and i will stick to that words and obviously i did not uh, yeah. never say never never say never so you know i really really mean it uh what made me change my mind though again is doing more internships and realizing that uh, the benefits of having a PhD uh, in in this field could be of value, and so you know that's what made me kind of like go back there and do my PhD simply because I had that original connection. Now I could have done you know that my research somewhere else, but eventually I also know that I'll spend probably you know eight to 12 hours a day just working. So at some point, it doesn't always matter where you are. I think if you're passionate about what you do, that's that's what you need to focus on. And Canada had a lot of things to offer and still has, you know, when I left to Canada, people were telling me, oh, you're going to Canada, so you're never coming back to France. And I was like, what are you talking about? And 10 years later, I'm still here. So obviously it's a great place to to live, a great place to, immigrate and uh yeah slowly moving towards my citizenship here so pretty excited about it yeah and i think even from the perspective of an opportunity of starting a business and start it early in your life i think canada well let's say north america but we're talking about canada specifically now it's a great place and if you are that type of person i think it's a good place to consider as we both know Mm -hmm. that it's much tougher to do similar, to start, kickstart your career in business or start your own enterprise in an early age somewhere else, even where I'm from or you're from, like it's it's not mm-hmm. as simple. And I think this is what North America definitely offers, but I do share <laughs> the feeling when you come and see it for the first time and the differences that you encounter, they're quite mm-hmm. drastic and you do have doubts and you do have some, I think, shopping experiences sometimes. So I think we'll talk more about business part, but maybe let's talk a little bit about the fun things. Like what was the biggest Mm -hmm. change or challenge when you moved to Calgary? Because again, Calgary is not also the, it's not the place where people usually go when they move to Canada. They usually choose Toronto. Mm -hmm. They choose Vancouver. Some people go to Montreal, which potentially for you being a French speaker would be a natural move, but you chose Calgary. So can you share with me some of the stories you remember when you just moved in? some challenges mm-hmm. and maybe some fun stories that, that you had? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, in terms of why did I pick Calgary, again, it was very much related to where I was doing my PhD, but it, it always surprises me that Calgary is always in the top five of places to live in the world. And I'm like, do people realize it's that cold there? Like, <laughs> do they know? Um, I think the people, people who come to... Live. To test it, yeah, I think the people from the comedy that makes that rating, I think they come visit uh-huh. during the summer. They, they must, or like, you know, just for skiing or something like that, because we do have incredible mountains. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, for me, I wanted to stay away from, you know, staying with French people. Like, I wanted to really have um, a, a change of culture, a complete change. And for me, it was important first to go in a place where, no not many french people live and so that's that's you know field that um that wish that i have um now i came i remember coming to calgary and then you know it was a beautiful fall and then i remember we went from fall to winter in literally one day and that was the first shock and i was like what happened uh 
literally like two feet of snow where while well, there was still like green grass outside and i was like okay and get ready for that uh, i was excited at the time you know like i didn't I, I used to see snow but not as much and so suddenly so and i love skiing so you know i was pretty excited um other than that i think there has been a lot of uh, funny uh word you know miscommunications that happened over time um I remember, you know, especially words around uh, when I was doing that presentation of uh, uh, at an MBA class, and we were talking about the challenges around water. And we had, you know, as a team developed a solution, and we were—I was in charge of presenting the problem to the entire audience. And instead of saying that it's such such a hassle to to deal with that, I always said hassle, hassle, hassle. It's just a hassle <laughs> to deal with this, and. <laughs> Like, that's the first thing that, you know, I realized everyone in the audience was actually staying quiet and smiling because that's Canadians. They're like so nice and they don't want to offend anyone. They will never make fun of other people. And, you know, even facing such silly jokes, they will actually, you know, stay composed and deal with it and, and move on. And, um, you know, I think it's it's a very forgiving culture in that sense and very welcoming for different places uh that's that's how they are built a canadian and i think canada in this way is doing an incredible job as um having a good a healthy immigration i think as much as as we can compared to other countries yeah i agree and i think culturally even now i think i see that nice side of people day to day still which is interesting. And mm -hmm. I find it's definitely part of me now too. And I'm sure it's part of you after so many years. So from my perspective, totally. I totally agree with you. Yeah. And is there anything else that you remember, which was like absolutely shocking for you or something that you, outside of the snow uh, pool, because I had the same experience as you, but I wonder like, yeah. is there anything else? <laughs> well, things like, you know, you, you, you cross the streets, you're a pedestrian, and there is no area to cross the streets, but you just go through because, you know, you come from Europe and you cross streets everywhere here. And, you know, there it's like run for your life because someone may just come and run you over. In Canada, like all the cars will stop like 50 meters ahead and wait for you to go, even though like you are in no way in your right to cross. And sometimes you just like feel guilty actually about crossing here. And then you start to like follow the rules because everyone expects you to do that. But I don't know. It, it's one of those experiences as well. Um, yeah. I mean, like, again, I think the, um, there is definitely some, some, some fun stuff. Uh, then there's also like a, a difference that I, I, I learned over time and it took me definitely some time to, to, you know, pull my head out, head out of my bubbles and, realize sometimes even how French I am and I didn't even realize it when I came here, like things around all the rules and the process we have when we set a table and when we eat and the traditional things where we all wait before, for example, uh, everyone is at the table before we start eating um, or like even things like how in Europe, maybe at least in France, we are much more prone to have a debate and, you know, talk about things that sometimes, you know, you try to be politically correct, uh, but you will speak in a way that is going to trigger a debate and often it will bring up emotions. And so that's something that we love doing in France and in Canada, it will be the opposite. So you have to like be careful also the type of language to use to not offend anyone. So it's, you know, there's the fun part and then there's the more, I will say, very Canadian, interesting part of dealing with a new culture. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Do you miss debates still after so many years? Oh, I miss debates so much. Yeah, I miss debates so much. Like, you know, I do I do have a group of friends where I know I can have debates and those ones are like very cherished friends where I know I can go to the place, crack open a bottle of wine and spend the evening just debating about just a couple topic and, and drilling deep into those. Yeah. I can totally agree with that and can totally relate to that. But as we mentioned before, it also has such a great environment for someone who is ambitious, someone who has an idea, someone who has the 
energy to start something new. I think it's uh -huh. definitely the place where you can maximize your potential and use your potential. And I would love to hear your stories and share your story with my audience, because I think what you've done by moving just as a PhD student from France to Calgary, Canada, and then going through your program, working on your project, and then turning uh -huh. that project into a company, becoming a CEO of a company, and doing so without a previous experience. And yet you've been doing it for so many years now. Is it five years now? Yeah, five years. Yeah, already. I mean, I know you said that you've changed the direction, but in general, so you've, you've been the CEO of a company for five years, and it does imply a huge personal professional growth, and it does have well, I, I, I know that it, it comes with so many different challenges, so many different um, situations that you had to overcome. So I would love to ask you about those. So what was the first, let, let's talk about starting business in Canada. How did you feel about it? So when that idea came to your mind, uh -huh. right? So you knew that you were a guy from France with PhD from Canada now. Did you have any doubts that as a French person in Canada, you will succeed in that. Did you have those doubts or you felt comfortable mm -hmm. about it? Well, I, I think like there is definitely uh, uh, imposter syndrome, you know, like you, you wonder mm -hmm. if, if it's the right thing and you question yourself a lot and, you know, it needs to be healthy, healthy questions. It's, it's a good syndrome to have, I think just uh, needs to not be too much. Um, but I actually would like to go even even further back than moving to Canada. I remember, you know, when I was doing my engineering school, there was a class on entrepreneurship. And during that class, two people came and asked us to write a business plan. And, you know, that went on for a semester. And then you have a business idea, you put it on paper, etc., and you present it. And at the time, I thought, we will do that. Like, it sounds so silly, like so much risk. Why will you do this? It's ridiculous. Not for me. Thank you. And, you know, then I, I went on and did a bit more work in France. And um, one of the other thing I would like to point out as well is in in France, typically, it's, it's more society that is rewarding people based on seniority, I find, more than a meritocratic society as we can find in North America. So, you know, in to give you an example where I was uh, working in France, once you're at a certain position, it's hard to move up the ladder quickly, even though, you know, you may have great ideas, you may be like one of the best employee of the month or whatever, just because you're going to have a lot of people that are older than you that's, you know, uh, keeping you down because it's, it's really much based on you respect your elders, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But I think sometimes in business, it's hampering good practices and, and good opportunities. So I was like a bit tired of this. And that's something that, you know, moving to Canada was a big switch to me as well. Um, the, fir the first thing, you know, like when I was in France and I told people that I was doing a PhD, they're like, oh, okay, okay, doing a PhD. When I came to Canada, people were like, you're doing a PhD? Oh, good for you, man. I was like, wow, thank you. That's such a nice thing to say. Um, but it's not necessarily like, you know, what, what will come in people's heads in France. So anyway, when I was doing my PhD, then I met some incredible people, entrepreneurs, both men and women, you know, in so many different fields, medical devices, uh, consumer goods, um, oil and gas, of course, in Calgary, energy, and listening to their stories that definitely felt like a roller coaster where sometimes you know, it felt like a nightmare and sometimes felt like an incredible thing to live. Um, I realized more and more that, yeah, if they did it, maybe I too could do it. And, you know, that culture of leading by the example and showing to younger generation what's possible and, and empowering them to actually um, go towards the dream, I think it's very much present in in Canada, and that's one one of the main difference I will say um, with starting a company. It provided me with the confidence that yeah, I should give it the shot. You know, like I will lose more not trying 
than uh, that if I was actually trying and failing. No, that's okay. Just like keep pushing, try, fail, try again, you know, and uh, eventually it will pay off. That's that's really a difference in mentality that um, helped me be where I am. And even though you still have that imposter syndrome, um, because you're still talking sometimes in a field where at the beginning, if at least you don't know much about and you feel like you don't grasp the vocabulary being used and uh, the structures of the deals to implement, etc. People are really willing to help and they understand yeah. that you can learn and if you can learn, then you can succeed. Yeah, and the, one of the purposes, I guess, of this podcast for me is actually to tell people that anything is possible. There's so many mm -hmm. great stories and examples of people who changed their lives, started new things, changed careers, changed everything. And it's like you said, it's all the matter of learning abilities. If you think you can learn something and if you put time in totally. efforts, you will be able to. And I, I actually have a question for you. So was it hard for you to ask for advice and for help? Was it something you had to learn or it was natural to you? Because that's something that I find that I found for me initially was a bit tough, but then I realized once you start doing so, there are people who can help and they're willing mm -hmm. to help. But it takes a bit of a barrier before because you feel that, oh, what if they will think you don't know something? What if they will think something about you? So did you go through some, something similar to this or you didn't? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think I was like, you know, I was the type of kid at school that will puts the entire class to sleep because I'll be the one at the front asking all these questions to the teacher. So for me, it was very much natural. Um, you know, if anything, I have to hold myself. I'm asking too many questions. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that was made possible because the environment around was welcoming curiosity. Uh, whereas, you know, sometimes it will be the opposite. When I was in France, it'll be like, oh, if I ask questions like, you know, the expression from the person in front of me receiving the question will make me feel a bit like I'm dumb. And so therefore it's not, you know, inducing me to ask more questions because I don't like feeling dumb or giving the perception that I'm dumb. Whereas in Canada, I felt, no, people are like actually asking me if I have any questions and, and you know, dig it out uh, of me. And because they understand that this is a, a mutual connection that we establish and there's growth, I think, for both parties when we help each other. And so when I started uh, doing my PhD and even then after, you know, the feeling of, yeah, ask questions, like go for it. Uh, people love questions and in fact, they they value your question. They value that there is, um, I would say, a brain that is thinking for the problem and really trying to solve it together is, is you know, part of the success, I think. Mm -hmm. Definitely. What do they say? What, like, is it, uh, you know, when, uh, when you, when you're young, you don't, uh, you don't ask questions because you think you're going to be, you're going to be, oh, what is it? When you, uh, that's it. When you, when you're young, you don't ask questions because you don't want to look dumb. And when you get older, you ask questions because you don't want to look dumb. <laughs> yeah. But I think, see, like sometimes people are okay with asking questions, but they feel in certain situation, a professional situation, they have a hard time to do so. And obviously there's an opposite situation, but I think if you, if you are open and if you are, you have questions and you feel comfortable asking them, I think you'll always find people. Who mm -hmm. help you. And I think, one, yeah, that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like, when you're in a startup, um, I think there is by definition that trait of not knowing and that you need to pull your weights by yeah. looking for information and you're looking for knowledge because you're going to have to figure it out. So you know, there is that trait in the culture of a startup of it's okay not to know, but you're going to need to go and learn and figure it out. And so asking questions is part of the process for that. Yeah, no, for sure. And do you recall, so when you became a CEO, that's something that many people have in mind. Oh my God, being a CEO, what is it? Mm -hmm. it, it sounds so... Well, I guess it depends what kind of CEO, what kind of company, but still that just, just abbreviation CEO means so much to so many mm -hmm. people. But what would be your best description of a CEO and day-to-day -day life of CEO of a startup for the first, let's say, year, year and a half? So mm -hmm. how would you describe it? Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of like perception and, and stigma about it. And 
you know, we always had this joke with a couple of the friends where like also CEOs of startups being like, you know, if anyone wants our job, please take it. Like, you know, it's, it's not as glamorous as people think. Yeah, when we travel, you know, to conferences, we are not traveling business or anything. It's like hop in one flight, go there and stay one night in the hotels and move to the next conference, etc. You know, it, it is it is not as um, glamorous again as what people think. But the day to day life, you know, when you start up, you, you're just like wearing so many multiple hats anyway, because you don't necessarily have the resources to hire people and do you know proper marketing or do proper product development or do proper you know commercialization strategy operation clinical uh protocol writing etc so you have to do it anyway so you know as a ceo maybe 60 to 70 percent of your activity is dedicated towards um you know business developments making partnership and uh working on the operation side as well uh, but then a lot of your time is just spread across all the things. Uh, I'm still, uh, of course, very much involved in, in product development engineering. It's still the case even more today. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's, that's just the life of an entrepreneur when you start as a CEO. It's, um, it's, it's you have to wear multiple hats and you have to, I think in my mind, be very adaptable. Like you have to understand that today you're doing something and your agenda may be completely switched by the end of the day. Uh, you still need to stay focused on the main two or three things you need to achieve for the day, but then like the whole, the whole world can be turned upside down uh, and you're going to have to problem solve every day for sure. Yeah. But it also comes with some tough decision-making process. You had to make some... Mm -hmm difficult decisions so how did you well how did you do that was it hard for you to learn is it a skill do you think or you just have to face it so how do you deal with those difficult situations and difficult decisions yeah you know like people say like entrepreneurs are born like i don't believe in it i really believe that you we we are just people are just naturally driven by wanting good for themselves and and the world around them and in order to achieve that, uh, they're going to just get out of their comfort zone. And the more you get out of your comfort zone and you start to have good experience doing it, the more you're going to be willing to be more in that situation of the unknown and in this discovery mindset uh, with your mission in mind. And so that's what I think pushes people, or at least push myself, to learn. Um, I had to take sometimes difficult decision and I still have to do it. We, we surrounded ourselves with incredible mentors. Um, I am so fortunate as well that I have incredible co-founders in the company that are bringing experience from different fields and a different approach as well on how to problem solve. And so that's together, I think makes us incredibly strong and I'm learning a lot from, from the people around me in, in the team and outside. Um, Eventually, you know, there's still some decisions that I will say, like, are breaking my heart every single time I make them, which when you let, need to let people go, for example, you know, like people that you believe in, people that you, you trust, and for yeah. reasons that sometimes are beyond your control, you need, you need to let them go. And so, you know, the, the, the benefit of the company always comes forward, uh, and it's a company for the people, but, you know, we need to make sure that we, we can survive and thrive and, and get product to market to impact patients' life. And so those decisions will are sometimes required and necessary, but they will always be painful to me, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And do you think, just talking about people who are, let's say they want to work for startup or working for startup, do you think they need to understand that type of mindset, what the company's mission comes forward? And that's what drives the decision. Do you think that's the best way to tell them or describe the decisions that CEOs or people running the company are making? Do you think that's the best way to describe it? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it is something that every, it doesn't, that, it doesn't matter what type of job you have. At the end of the day, you will be part of an organization if you are not just working by yourself. And then, um, you know, the organization, is is more important you know that dedication that sense of like um we want to have an impact you know it's it's the same if you were working for a university or for a non-for-profit or for profit organization 
I believe there's going to be that uh, requirement or that sense that we are a team and we need to work on a common goal. You know, and we the talk a lot about that. And the performance merits, yeah. But that's the thing, right? Like you, I mean, we talk a lot about like the soccer game right now because it's the World Cup. Well, you have great players that stays on the side right now and are not being used, even though everyone thinks they should, right? Uh, but depending on the type of game you're playing and depending on the the resources and availability of different players, you're going to be pulling those resources as needed and as you see fit because we need to win as a team. And so, you know, those, um, that's that's what involves sometimes some, some hard decision. But at the end of the day, you know, I really believe that if you communicate those values and if you communicate properly and you respect people, everyone understands it because it does make sense. It's not like everyone is trying to be mean against someone else. It's like, no, we're trying to have, again, success altogether. And so how do we make that happen? You know, mm -hmm. it's uh, we have to, to fight some, some or even our ego sometimes to, to make that happen. How quickly you had to let go someone after you started in the position of CEO? Did it come soon or it took you a couple of years before you had to make the first one? To make what, sorry? To let someone go for the first time. Oh, I see. Uh, a couple of years, yeah. Um, you know, mm -hmm. we uh, uh, we were just at a time where we needed to to have some financial, um, you know, room in order to advance on certain projects, and we couldn't do it with everyone on the team, so we had to uh, to make those tough calls. Um, yeah, several years, and and you know, that was a new process for me. There's like there's a process to do that. Uh, that's what I mean also by, you know, typically if you're in a big company, you're going to have the human resources that's mainly deal with it. Well, when you're CEO, you have to do it yourself in the startup, right? So yeah. there's, uh, that's there's... what I wanted to bring it out of you because it's tough, right? So when you are in charge and you hire people, you build your team, but you're uh -huh. also in charge of making those hard decisions. And they also apply to investors too. So when you are raising money for your company, absolutely. So you don't take on every single offer that you get. You also have to make those decisions, even though sometimes you know the company is struggling or you need to get mm -hmm. the next round, but you still have to be very strategic and be able to communicate your message to potential investors. So how did you learn that? Did you take you like you still learning it or you felt that after a couple of years it became easier? So what was your experience? Yeah, I was, um, I was very fortunate uh, to be part of the Creative Destruction Lab program, and I think in that in that um, group of investors, they are mainly, I will say, if not all, trusted investors and people that know each other, that do deals together, etc. So, you know, by definition, I think if one other people they will not do a deal that is fair for either the entrepreneur or the other investors they will be flagged and no one will want to make more deals with them. So I think we were very fortunate to be able to start within that environment that allowed us to create that circle of investor slash advisor that then were able to guide us on the right decision to make when we talk to other type of investors and the deals that we have on the table. Um, now going back to that sense of, you know, feeling, um, you know, an imposter, like the imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. Believe me, when you start to collect money, like that imposter syndrome, just like doubles in size because you're like, oh no, I have money now. What do I do with it? I'm actually going to do it. And it's like, okay, you know, it's it's a different, it's another step in the journey. And I think every time you're going to raise our next round, we're going to have that imposter syndrome that comes back at us and, and we're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. But what do you think, what do you think is your strength as a CEO? What are your strengths? Oh, Anna, please tell me what my strength is. Um, I haven't been able to necessarily, you know, point it down. It's like, we always have that conversation between the founders. It's like, what's your superpower? You know, like, what is the <laughs> thing that you are really good at so you can excel there? I still, I'm still figuring it out. I feel like there's just not one thing or one skill that, um, that I feel makes me better than others. I think, if anything, it is my ability to, uh, make sense of a lot of information and bring it down to what's matter and now being able to take very quick decisions out of those informations as well as being comfortable with not knowing the full picture but still realizing that we need to move forward and therefore we're gonna we're gonna make a step somewhere um 
you know, I don't think there is a specific scale. Uh, sorry, a specific scale. Yeah, that I have. I think it's more like a combination, uh, maybe a bit of a Swiss Army knife. Uh, but eventually, you know, I think it's it's all down to also bringing or oh, mingling yourself with people uh, that are gonna surround you and create the team that's gonna make that that story successful. Um, so yeah, no specific skill. I think just like surround yourself with the great people and and uh, work work on everything and anything. I think you know that's as we talk. You know, I'm thinking as well. Like in the future, let's say I work for uh, another company um, and I'm not having to do HR work, for example, human resource work. Well, because I had to be an entrepreneur and I had to do all this, this make these decisions. I'll be able also to relate to the people in those departments and what they are doing and the implications of all this, et cetera. So I think in a way, you know, knowing, not necessarily being 100% perfect on niche things, but 80% on them and being able to relate to the people is is maybe what, what I enjoy the most, I think, and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, since you brought up the word skill in your answer, <laughs> I'm curious to learn what do you think, what skills you wish you have developed earlier that could have helped mm. you now or, you know, later in your career. So something that you think is valuable for a CEO, but you wish you had developed much earlier. Totally. Or maybe you have, oh. I don't know, but maybe that's <laughs> something. No, I, yeah, no, I have like, um, I have three specifically. Um, Two are uh, mainly knowledge driven. So that's going to be more around, you know, business knowledge, understanding what an investment means, understanding what a cap table is, understanding what uh, a safe compared to a convertible note, compared to a debt note, compared to an equity investment is, you know, all these things, having a general understanding of how business or companies are structured with different shareholders. And that is uh, how most of a society, you know, evolve. You know, there is a board also in a for-profit organization. There is a board at the universities, you know, in all these different institutions, there is a structure in place. And understanding how that structure works, who is doing execution and who is at the board and making higher level decision, it's, I think, very important to understand it. And coming from my engineering background, I didn't necessarily grasp that, uh, that's, I will say environment. Now, the other thing that is also knowledge based is quality management system and product development, understanding that in our field, you know, in medical devices, but it also applies in other industries, you need to be able to record things, you need to be able to track things, you need to be able to provide information to regulatory bodies that what you're doing is safe and that you're complying with the rules in place. Um, you know, when you are coming from an engineering background, technical background, all you, all you think of doing is building stuff because that's fun. And so you kind of like dismiss the quality management side. And I think that's also something that having some knowledge about why it's there and why it's important to follow those guidelines, I think is important. And now the third point, which I think is not necessarily knowledge base, will be something that you know very well now is sales. Um, you know, the world we live in is about sell. Like it's Christmas time soon. Sales strategies are applied all over us to get that gift compared to that thing. Um, you know, how do you sell ideas? How do you sell products? You apply it everywhere. When you start raising capital, you sell an idea to investor. You sell them a piece of a company, but you can't give them a product today. You sell them the dream of we're gonna the idea we're gonna get there and therefore you want to be part of that you know and so sales is is so important and i wish i had learned that that skills um earlier on and i think i i wish there was a bit of a demystification around sale not thinking oh it's just like voodoo science uh no they are they have techniques and processes and also maybe a demystification around you know sales can be used for good and let's talk about that rather than always pointing at sales that are done for bad because that's typically how the media will often picture it. Well, as you know, that's part of my goal is to change that perception 
mm-hmm. and to show yeah. the other side of it rather than what you just described. So I'm, I'm glad that you pointed out that I think it's extremely important. We don't realize how much selling we all do and how much selling, mm-hmm. is, like you said, around, is around us. So definitely, definitely makes sense, especially for a company, especially for a startup or an idea or a dream, like you said, you have to sell it. Otherwise you will not go anywhere. Yeah, that's great. It, it goes like, you know, on setting material things to even setting an idea to your team. How do you convince people to work with you? How do you convince mm-hmm. people that out of like three different things we should be doing, it's actually this one we need to focus on. Like, how do you bring a team to that vision as well? That's, that's sales. Um, yeah. Some people will call it persuasion, uh, et cetera, but you know, there is a lot of good feeling as well. I think that comes with doing yeah. this properly, like empathy, like openness, transparency, et cetera. And yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, I was, um, believe it or not, but I was definitely an introvert as a kid, like, uh, and I needed to put my extrovert side out. And I feel like if I had learned sales skills, maybe early on, I would have come to that position, maybe a bit earlier, or that realization at least. Yeah. I still think you are doing a remarkable job with your career and everything you've done to date. So I think it's not about Thank you. when you started, <laughs> it's just as long as you acknowledge and you develop your skills. So I think from my yeah. perspective, I think you, you've done remarkably well, but I agree it's, it's important to talk about things like that and keep them in mind when you are mm-hmm. set on that path where you, you are looking uh, into an opportunity of starting a company, running a company. So it's definitely something to think about. And especially for people who are changing countries, I actually want to point that out because I think it's important. Well, for me, that's how I see it too. So when you mm-hmm. are moving from one country to another, you're changing the language, you're changing the culture. Sometimes it's hard to actually break into that comfort level where you can actually go and sell. Many people have those doubts. So I'm trying to actually tell people that everything is possible. It's a matter of time and dedication. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter where you come from, especially when you're coming from a culture where sales was not something promoted. Like I came from a culture where people mm-hmm. tend to be, well, it's, it's a culture that tells you be humble, stay put, like be, so you are not really out there as much. So it's, it's important to get out of that shell and just try yeah, absolutely. And I think like, just to echo what you say around culture, I think though that sales process needs to be adapted on the culture, obviously, but you know, there's, I'm reading a very cool book these days. Um, it's, uh, it's called, uh, influential. I think the name is, um, I'm writing it down. Let me check. It's called, it's called real influence by, uh, oh. Mark Coulston, okay. um, and John Ullman. And so it talks in this book about, you know, what we'll call like a transactional, transactional deal, sorry. And I, th- I can't remember the name of the other type of deal, like maybe more like human deal. And so um, one is pretty transactional and that's typically, you know, a culture maybe more in North America where like, you know, I give you this, you give me back. Okay, let's move on next step. Boom, 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 very fast pace. And then if you go to places like Asia typically, it will be more based on people. You know, you will invite trust. people for food, trust, you build that trust. In the, that, if there's mm-hmm. not that trust in relationship, you don't even talk about the transaction, right? Yeah. And so learning a bit more how you, you, you create um, long-term value around deals and sales and how you work with people, I think it's so important. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I'll leave the name of the book in the description of the episode so people can also check it out. Thank you. Awesome. Suggestion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about a little bit more about some, uh, well, trying to stay on time on our chat because we can probably talk forever, but uh, let's talk about some challenges of running the business and also benefits that you see for yourself since you've started on this journey. So, what was the biggest challenge? How about that? Let's keep it one, one challenge and one great benefit that you see for yourself as a person, as a personal growth and personal development. Yeah, I think, um, you know, a benefit is like, again, developing that like Swiss army skill set. you know, like just, you want to talk about legal. Okay. You want to talk about regulatory. Okay. No, no problem. You want to talk about like product development pathway or business plan or like, 
working on financials, you know, like I'm game, you know, and I can, mm-hmm. I can switch from one to the other, maybe like six or seven times during a single day. Um, I love that, you know, maybe, maybe I'm a bit ADHD and maybe it's, you know, part of what helps me because I, this way I don't have to stay focused on one thing for the entire day. But I really believe that that's something that I had to develop and I really, really, really enjoy. Um, the, the other aspect that I think sometimes can be more challenging is, um, you know, when you are a founder or entrepreneur, it's hard to realize maybe what is actually the work until you actually do it yourself. So that's why you have communities of entrepreneurs that get together because they, they all have scars. They all have like their own journeys, the up and downs. And it's such, uh, you know, an emotional journey that you have to live it to actually really understand it. Um, and so in that regard, I find sometimes communicating with proper words, what is the journey, uh, what it takes, and, you know, what actually, what are the, the skills and benefits you can bring to society outside of being, you know, an entrepreneur or founder um, is something that can be hard to communicate as well because, you know, if you go into like a role where um, you have to do marketing, let's say later, well, how do you get, how are you going to trade the value of doing like, I know how to do marketing, maybe not as someone who has done just that for 10 years, but I know all these other things around marketing that this person don't know. And how do you value that properly? I think in our society, because we like to put people in boxes. We like to think, okay, this is what this person is going to do. This is what this person is going to do. And here you have an entrepreneur that, you know, may not be excellent at everything, but good enough at all these things. And so how do you, how do you manage that uh, in this world? I think is, is sometimes a bit challenging and, and usually you will relate then pretty quickly to people that went on a similar journey because they know, like they know what, mm-hmm. what you had to, to do to, to get there. Yeah. And I think the biggest Does that point make here sense? is like, oh yeah, de- totally. And I think the biggest point here is that sometimes it can feel a bit of a alone, but if you find those people, like when people, the journey becomes so much easier and I can relate to it. And based on what you tell mm-hmm. me, that's definitely something that helps. And there are people like that. They're willing to talk. They're willing to, it's more about opening up and building Absolutely. around yourself. And yeah, just everyone joins the ride and you just share the, the experience altogether. <laughs> Absolutely. And like you were talking before about, you know, going and asking questions, asking for advice, mm-hmm. etc. You know, that's, that's really the thing that I will recommend to entrepreneurs as well. Like when you go to confer- conferences that are specifically directed to startup, um, go talk to other founders and, and become friends with them. Like, you know, there's a high priority that you have li- like very similar mindsets. Um, we have also incredible organization, I think in Alberta, I'm thinking about VMSA, so Venture Mentorship Society of Alberta. Um, I've been so fortunate to be mentored by them for so many years that, you know, I don't, I don't know how, how, how I would have done it without them really. Like, I think having people that went for that journey and that giving back to the community um, is, is so important and these people are around. So as an entrepreneur, make it a point to go and talk to them and, and, you know, be their mentee. What question here, do you pay for this or that's available for anyone? Anyone can be enrolled inside, can sign up. Yeah. So for that one, particularly, you don't have to pay, um, you know, as a rule of thumb, funny enough, uh, most of the program that we ended up participating either for, you know, personal development or for incubators and, and things like that, the one that were the best and we get the most out of it were often the free ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, there's something about people that's put together this program and, and managed to provide them for free to startups because they genuinely want to help. And that's the mission. Whereas maybe in other organization when it becomes more for profit and the number one mission is to, you know, Probably. make sure they survive. So they need to make money and then they're going to do that through the startups that they help. But, you know, it's when you can reverse that and really make no matter what you need to have companies applying and getting supported at no cost. I think that's, 
that's typically where we saw the most benefit, at least in our own experience. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about a fun topic of the future of healthcare, of medical technology, because you have obviously great experience in building your own product, being well, you're building something novel, something unique. But I'm curious to know what is your opinion about the future, how the med tech mm -hmm. world will be shaping for the. Uh, well, how about the decade? Let's talk about the next decade. We can't really. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Do you um, want to keep it at five years? I don't know if you, that's easy no, for you. Cause I, know. <laughs> I, I like bold ideas. I like bold ideas. Uh, uh -huh. Ten years. Great. Uh -huh. um, okay. So. I think we, we will both agree Anna, that uh, the medical field is slow. It's a slow moving environment, right? Um, I think there's two things behind that and maybe, maybe you, you will counter this argument or add more, but I think there's just the fact that yes, there is a regulatory body that makes sure that we do things properly, but this is healthy to have such a regulatory um, organization that you know, protects the patients and the customers. Um, and I think they are doing a, we are an experience that doing a pretty incredible job at being reactive actually and getting back to us when we have questions. And that's awesome to see that. But I think there's even something that slows innovation even more is just the way that the healthcare system is built and how it's just not prone to innovations where you really have people inside that or the majority don't want to change the way they are doing things because that's what they know. That's what uh, they believe works the best, and therefore that's what they're going to keep doing. Um, and so, you know, I'm going to be a bit moderate on my answer on where do I see the field in 10 years from now, because I don't think we're going to be like, you know, doing surgery on people on Mars, like Elon Musk may be thinking. Um, I think we're going to be way beyond that. So, yeah, not as advanced than that. Um, I think if we can even just like check the box on going to like a fully digital patient record in North America, it will be a big step for everyone. You know, that's something that they're always doing in China and in India because they jump straight into those systems and we are so behind in North America. If in 10 years from now we have managed to put everyone digital, great. That's a great start. And then, and then of course, we're going to do a bit of machine learning and AI behind that. But uh, yeah. Um, where do I want things to go? You know, I would love to see more preventive medicine. I would love to see um, more minimally invasive surgery. And I think we are going there, you know, still, but it's still like, oh my God, snail bait. And eventually I, I believe that the trends that we see in North America, again, if we really, really want to have a better solution for patients, it's gonna need to recreate the healthcare system and make it work for the patients rather than for the hospitals. Maybe we need a bit more of a mix of public and private system like it is in Europe. Um, we see obviously people in better health there. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your skepticism. I think I share a part of your blend. skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not as Canadian as expected. But yes, okay. I think you are right, yeah. though. I think you're right, though. I agree with that. I agree that it's very slow and the progress is slow. However, we are working on lots of great products, potential products, potential devices, potential technologies that can help and improve healthcare. But yes, it's a matter mm -hmm. of cost and the time and how long it will take to get it to the point that it can be used in people and not only using people, but also can be integrated into the healthcare system of each country, each region, because we're still quite divided that's actually one more thing that I, i'm quite interested in general that we are in a we live in a global society right but we still are still divided we still have the european way of doing things we have the north american way of doing things, south american way of doing things and companies are obviously asia is a totally different beast in a way how they progress and what they do so each company each product has to be adopted for all of them, especially when it comes to healthcare. So yes, I think you're right, mm -hmm. it might take some time. But I also think some crazy ideas, actually you touched on it a little bit. So you were talking about Elon Musk. So I'm curious to know, specifically because you are working with brain monitoring and mm -hmm. brain electrodes and nano devices. 
I'm curious to know what's your opinion about all the claims are being around. Actually, this year, quite a bit of news that Elon Musk had with Neuralink. I'm curious to know what you think about it. Yeah, I think like, so, you know, it, it part also relates to um, the field of neurotechnologies in general. And uh, we have had to do a very big analysis of the industry itself to see where technology could be applied even in other applications than the brain, uh, actually in non-invasive uh, stimulation in women's health, which is, we believe, an, an incredible opportunity. It's so exciting and it's, it's, it's such a needed solution. But as we did that whole analysis, it made us realize a lot of things on the possibilities around above the neck and below the neck applications or implantable devices versus non-implantable. And in that context, you know, when you look at what Neuralink is doing, I think as many people will tell you, it's incredible engineering, but in terms of neuroscience, it's really questionable because they are pushing things forward or making claims that actually we have done like 10, 20 years ago. There's nothing really new about that. Of course, uh, Elon has obviously is very good at marketing, is very good at setting stories and, and, you know, bring people behind him towards that. But people who knows who know about the topic and who have, you know, banged their head on multiple problems that he's trying to solve for like a long time, they know that it's not as straightforward as this. And they know that the reality is very, very different than the claims they make. Mm -hmm. I think Neuralink is also facing some challenges, you know, when you look at Synchron, that in the news came as really the first company with a less invasive approach to use brain machine interface. Um, I think they're trying maybe to, you know, make a bit of hype and, and smoke here and there to make sure that people don't forget them. Uh, I'm curious to see where they're going to go. I think like they have a lot in their plate. Uh, I just believe like if I had to put my own money behind a company, I, I, honestly, I think I'll pick, I'll pick a different one. Yeah. I'm actually very skeptical myself, but I have this conversation. Well, I've had this conversation with multiple people and people who are relatively far away from neuroscience and they don't really encounter it on a day-to-day -day basis. They all think that our memory is literally like Elon and some people who support Neuralink, they think the memory is just, uh, you can just download it on USB stick, but it doesn't work that way. We're much more complex. So that's why I'm also very skeptical about some of the claims that they're trying to make. And also, yeah. I'm also very skeptical about the ethical components of this. As we know, it's a very different story to have an ethical approval on something like that or something invasive and something that can stay in your body versus, let's say, if you are developing, I don't know, a new computer, a new device that will be an external, I don't know, a robot, <laughs> external mm -hmm. to human body. So I think that's another part that I find it's, I'm very skeptical about, and I'm not sure if mm -hmm. the next decade will be a very successful one, but those are our predictions, and it will stay on record for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it really, it it. Record, like, I can't wait to see in 10 years, you know, 10 years from now where they are at, if they are still there, <laughs> you know, like what, what I will say is that I, I see a risk of um, creating false hope and, you know, that's false hope being exposed public and then people don't believe in implants anymore, you know, like implants have they used, like they can really, really change people's life for the better. Um, right now, I think in the industry, there is still a really strong push towards trying to understand how we can get those devices implanted in people that need the most as quickly as possible, but we still face the barriers that invasive solutions are always gonna be the last resource for now. You know, if you're a doctor, you're gonna try all the possible solutions before you offer that to your patients. So by definition, then you always talk about last resort conditions. And so you are only talking about a tiny, tiny fraction of the population. And today we do have technologies at work, but how do we get that technology to patients is the challenge we need to solve. Now, when I see Neuralink making claims like that, maybe bringing false hope to people and not delivering on the timeline they stay and what they, they, they promise they will bring to markets i'm thinking of you know the public being more 
I will say against implants in general, because for many people, they will, you know, put a Medtronic device and a Boston scientific device, then at the end of the day in the same box that may be Neuralink because it's all brain implants, but they are fundamentally very different. Um, I guess, like, I think we have as medical device companies, and especially when it comes to, for example, new technologies, we have a duty to uh, educate people in the sense of like providing that information to them about what it is really about, what it does, how it can help people, uh, but base it on science and in fact, rather than just on Twitter. I agree with you so much. You actually touched on a very important point about the false hope and how that can actually influence the future of the industry. We've seen that before with Theranos, remember, with Elizabeth Holmes that just this year finally got her sentence. And that was a huge deal because I remember mm -hmm. her story when I studied it in my master's program and she was seen as a hero of the biomedical biotech industry. And now we're looking back at that and how I sometimes think what type of impact her story had on the industry and on that trust right, that she unfortunately contributed totally. to to by by spreading those false hopes and the trust that the industry lost in the faces of so many people. So I agree with you so much that it's it's a mm -hmm. very sensitive subject and it needs to be dealt with with care and we need to think about it. And yes, I also think we need to approach everything that comes to healthcare, med tech with science, with scientific proof and mm -hmm. obviously keep the patient's well being number one priority as much as we do want to live in a fantasy in a world where we can actually control things with just power of thought there's so many people suffering from so many different conditions and we need to fix mm -hmm. those issues too and like you said yeah it's 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 a dangerous zone if people will lose trust into implantables and implantable devices and they will put everything because people do put things into the same bucket like you said and mm -hmm. they can put the yeah so yeah. many different things in the Absolutely. same category. Well, we've seen it with vaccine, but we're not going to go there. Anyways, <laughs> we're not going to go there. Um, but yeah, well, I thank you. I appreciate it. Like I said, it's on the record, so we'll see what happens in 10 years. Maybe we'll we see. Are, yeah, maybe we're wrong, but maybe we're right. But as of now, I'm quite skeptical and I hope that maybe we can put the technology they developed into some good use and instead of dreaming about some, mm -hmm. some <laughs> crazy ideas, maybe we can help people actually now. Yeah. Like, change Absolutely. people's life like you do with your company and i'm wishing your company all the best because i know you've changed your strategy you're changing the direction that you're taking so i am mm -hmm. going to follow of course and see and i'm curious to know how far you can take it so i'm really happy and thrilled for you yeah absolutely and on uh, on that note like um you know we a lot of the realization that we had over that last year and and that also brought me to uh, to change role um it is there's this uh, person called tom busby and uh he worked with um giovanni also called the medtech guy on social media and he had this postcard podcast where uh, paul is you know he's an investment banker he has done uh, a lot of work with non-for-profit as well and he has this sentence he says like technology will always break your heart and he gives a few examples here and there about you know it doesn't matter at the end of the day like you can have the best technology in the world that can save people lives etc but there are so many variables around the market the readiness reimbursement code etc that make that technology actually has no impact because you can't bring it to patient properly you know, as engineers, we always think about tech, 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 but there is, we need to look at the other side. We need to look at, you know, not necessarily like how are we going to push that technology through, but how are we going to have the market pulling it from us actually because they want it so badly and it's going to work, right? So I really recommend that podcast as well. Tom is an incredible person to uh, to listen to as well. What was the name of the podcast again? The Matthew? Yeah, so I'll send you the link and, and you can put it in the chat as well. Okay, uh, but it as well. Yeah. Tom uh, Tom Busby is the name of the interviewee uh, oh, during okay. that uh, during that call. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. I'll do that. Well, I have one last question for you. I asked that question for all of my guests. It's a fun question, and it's something that mm -hmm. I'm passionate about. It's traveling, and I know I talk mm -hmm. about it quite a bit in all my podcasts and all my social media uh, platforms. <laughs> so my question to you is. Where is your next destination and why? 
uh, Christmas break. I'm finally taking some time off. I'm heading to Argentina, end of the week. I'm going to spend a few weeks there with my partner and her family. We're going to be uh, drinking wine, sleeping, and going for a trek in the mountains uh, on horses. So talking about, you know, going out of my comfort zone, um, I never really explored, you know, equestrian activities. Uh, I started this year, and I can tell you, like, when you stand next to, to a horse, it, it's much bigger than I thought. Um, so, you know, I do have to get used to, to this, to this gentle beast. Uh, pretty excited about that trip and, and yeah, getting more into that new and fun activity. Definitely needs to, you know, as many Canadians do go on the, on the south side, uh, to get a bit of warmth. Enjoy some warmth. I also want to say that sometimes that people say that horseback riding, is a skill that you learn not just for the sake of doing so, but it's also a psychological exercise because you have another living creature that needs to feel mm-hmm. you and listen to you. you, need to basically control them. So it's mm-hmm. actually a challenging skill, not from the perspective of, yes, the technique is there, you can learn it, but it's also a psychological exercise, which is really good for people to learn. So I hope that's something that you can totally. actually enjoy. <laughs> Yeah, as I was, uh, I was like, you know, just trying it for the first time a few months ago, and the person was telling me, "Well, yeah, it's a bit like, it's uh, it's like driving a car, but the car has its own mind. So you know, it's, it's not guaranteed how you're going to control that car." Uh, yeah, that's exactly I, I what I'm... That, I love that one. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. It's so different from a car because you are you are dealing with another personality, and you have to make it work. So I think it's not just the skill itself, but also that. Yeah. That part, which is great well thank you thank you so it's, much for sharing it's, it's your like story self, yeah <laughs> uh-huh. it's, it's like a it's like a self-driving car except it really doesn't follow the road <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> yeah well enjoy i hope you have a great time there and again thank you so much for joining me on my podcast thank you for sharing your story i will share the details about the company and your social profile with my listeners so they can follow you they can follow the company all the best to you to your team and i i'm so grateful for you to agreeing to this being my guest here and sharing your story with people no thank you so much for having me and i thank you very much for the opportunity to you know also give back to the community and share a story Always happy to talk with more and more people as they also ask themselves questions. And please feel free to also share my contact details if I can help anyone else. Thank you. Appreciate it.